Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 13 of Fairy Islands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Fairy Islands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter 13. At the House of Taree. You will not find Ahu-Ahu under that name on any chart, and it would be equally useless to search for Nukaturi. Yet both islands exist, and I like their ancient names better than the modern ones. Glance at your maps, and you will see the eastern Pacific dotted with islands bearing names like Jarvis, Malden, and Starbuck. Names which suggest no more than the thought of some wandering skipper immortalizing himself by adding new dangers to the chart. Then think of Nutatari, the immortal name of an island known wherever the old Polynesians gathered to tell their tales. Nukatari, the object of the war fleet's voyage. It needs a dull imagination not to feel a stir. It was on Nukatari that I found that curious fellow Tari at home. Friends often smile at my passion for wild fowl, yet I owe this peaceful adventure entirely to a duck. For several days I had been waiting a chance to photograph the skyline of the island, and when one afternoon the clouds about the peaks disappeared, I put my camera into a small outrigger canoe and paddled down the lagoon, on the lookout for the viewpoint of greatest beauty. I had gone a number of miles, and the sun was low, when I found the view I wanted. Though the silhouette of Nukateri was clear-cut, there were clouds in the west, and the light was not strong enough for an instantaneous picture. The lagoon is narrow at this point. There was nothing to do but paddle out to the reef and set up my tripod in the shallow wash of the sea. In this manner I made ten exposures. Pretty things they must have been with the long evening shadows, the foreshore of dark bush beyond the water, the high profile of peaks and jagged ridges against the sky. I folded the steel tripod and stowed the camera in its case. Just as I pushed off to paddle back to the village, I heard the whimper of a duck's wings in leisurely flight. I have a very fair acquaintance with the ducks of the northern hemisphere which winter in considerable numbers in Hawaii and occasionally drift down as far as Perrin Island, nine degrees south of the equator. But though it must be well known in scientific quarters, the odd non-migratory duck of the South Seas is a puzzle to me. It is an unsocial bird, this Polynesian cousin of the mallard, 
a lover of solitude, a haunter of thick woods and lonely valleys. Though I have seen them many times in the distance, I have been unable to obtain a specimen so far. I used to wonder how they survived the swarms of bloodthirsty island rats until a friend wrote me from the cook group. On top of the razor-backed ridge behind the plantation, the dogs put up a duck almost under our feet. I found the nest well hidden in the fern, a beautifully constructed affair, edged with a combing of down curled inward. There were eight eggs standing on end and arranged to occupy the least possible space. When the ducklings appear, the old bird must carry them down one at a time, a thousand feet or more, to the swampy feeding grounds. I could tell by the sound of its wings that the duck approaching me over the lagoon was closer than any I had seen. In my eagerness for a glimpse, I forgot all about cameras and canoes. I flung myself around to look, intent and open-mouthed. Next moment the outrigger heaved up with the speed of a rolling porpoise, described a flashing arc through the air, and smacked heavily into the water, closing over my head. It was a fast bit of comedy. The coral anchor and my tripod went to the bottom. I caught the camera instinctively, and I rose sputtering to the surface, where I managed to balance it on the flat bottom of the canoe. Then, as the water was not deep, I had on nothing but a singlet and a peru. I swam down to get the tripod and started for shore, pushing the canoe before me. Ahead on the beach two girls and a boy were dancing and rolling in the sand. As the water left my ears, I could hear their screams of joy. For the moment I found myself unable to join the mirth. My thoughts dwelt on cameras and on a story I had heard the night before. How a fisherman, not far from where I was, had felt a tug at his waist as he swam with face submerged watching the bottom and turned to see a shark of imposing sides nip off the largest fish on his string. The closer sight of me seemed to redouble the appreciation of my audience, but it was not until I was splashing in the shallows that I was able to smile. Then I saw that the elder of the girls was Apokura, the wife of Tari. She had been washing clothes at the mouth of the little stream and came forward, bare-armed and smiling maliciously, to greet me. "'Ah, you have come to bathe in the sea,' she said. As I took her hand, and at the enormous joke all three fell into such a convulsion of laughter that they were obliged to sink down on the sand once more. When she had caught her breath, she turned to call her husband. "'E tari! E tari! Ari my ikani!' A moment later he stepped out of the bush, rubbing from his eyes the sleep of an afternoon nap and I was shaking his hand. I knew Tarbee rather well, and have spent a good deal of time within a few miles of where he lives, yet I had been to his house only once before. This is characteristic of the islands. There is an agreeable indifference about the relations of white men down here, a careless friendliness I found pleasanter than the more strained and effusive society of civilized places. In every part of the world, of course, this tranquil simplicity, the essence of the finest manner, is to be found among the few who have studied the art of living, but the average one of us is neither sure enough of himself nor sufficiently indifferent to the opinion of others, handicapped by an abnormal sense of obligation. We permit ourselves both to bore and to be bored. In certain respects, the native is a very well-bred man. Perhaps the white intruder has got something of his manner, or it may be that distance from home brings life into a truer focus. 
In any case, one deals with the white man of the islands without consciousness of an effort either to entertain or to impress. When you stop at the house of a strange planter, he will offer you a whiskey and soda. If you refuse, nothing more will be said of the matter. At home, with a parching throat, it is quite conceivable that you might tell your chance host not to bother, looking forward with hopeful hypocrisy, to his persuasion and your own inevitable acceptance. I think I like Tari the better for not having asked me to his house. Now the hazard had brought me to the door. He made me feel that I was really welcome. The house was set on a little rise of land, with a view of the lagoon at the end of an avenue of tall coconut palms, the broad veranda set with steamer chairs and scarlet-bordered akatui mats, gave me a garden of small flowering trees, fragrant pie, Tari Tahiti, maid of Mori, queen of the night. Tari showed me to a corner room and mixed a rum punch while his wife put buttons on a fresh suit of drill. Dressed in his clothes, I strolled into the living room to wait while he was changing for dinner. The place was large, and one might have spent hours examining the things it contained. The fruit of twenty years in the South Seas. There were wreaths of bright-colored shell, the favorite parting gift of the islands, from the Pamutas, from Aretina, from Aetuki and Manikis. There were fans from Maniki, woven in patterns of dyed panadas and Savage Island fans decorated with human hair. Ranged on a series of shelves, I found a notable collection of penas, the tarot mashers of eastern Polynesia's implements in which the culture of each group expresses itself. I was able to recognize the pestle of Magdalene, eight-sided and carved with almost geometrical perfection, from a stalactite of pink lime, the Marquesian penue of dark volcanic stone, with its curious phallic handle, the implement of old Tahiti gracefully designed and smoothly finished by a people far removed from savagery, the rare and beautiful panoe of Mapiti, unobtainable today, perfect as though turned on a lathe and adorned with a fantastic handle of ancient and forgotten significance. Mother of Pearl Bonito Hooks, from a dozen groups, where there, and on a table, I saw a rare toki-tiki from Mangnia, an odd thing which, for want of a better name, might be called a peace adze. It is a slender little tower of carved wood, set with tiers of windows and surmounted by a stone adze head, lashed on with wrapplings of senate, above which extend a pair of pointed ears. The carving in the close-grained yellow wood of the puna is exquisitely done. I recognized the standard patterns of the islands, the shark's teeth, the dropping water, and the intricate tiki-tanga. The significance of the peace adaz was religious and ceremonial. The story goes that when, at the end of a period of fighting, two Magian clans decided to make peace, the adaz played a leading role in the attendant ceremony. A handful of earth was dug up with its head to show that the ground might now be cultivated and the people were told that they might come and go unmolested, freely as the air through the window-like openings on its sides. Terry had real adazes as well, the tools with which trees were chopped down and canoes hollowed out, stone implements of a perfection I have never seen elsewhere, carved out of the basaltic rock, hard and close as steel, smoothed by processes 
at which one can only guess, sharp and symmetrical as the product of modern machines. The Marquesian curiosities interested me most of all. Relics of the dark valleys which harbored the most strangely fascinating of all the island people. There were ornaments of old men's beards arranged in little senate-bound tufts, wrinkled in yellowish-white, baked clubs of ironwood, elegantly carved and smooth, with countless oilings, ear-pendants cut in delicate filigree from the teeth of sperm-whales, grotesque little wooden gods, monstrous and bizarre ceremonial food-bowls of Tamanu adorned with the rich and graceful designs of a culture now forever gone. One felt that the spirits of forgotten artists hovered about the place, beckoning one back to days a century before Melville set foot in the valley of Tepe, to scenes of a strange beauty on which mankind will never look again. Some day, perhaps in a future less remote than we like to fancy, nature's careless hand may once more set the stage for a similar experiment, but the people sequestered in these gloomy islands will be of another blood, and the result can never be the same. The Marquesians themselves, if one is to believe the students of antique mankind, were the result of a racial retrogression. Their continental forebearers knew iron and pottery, and the culture of rice, things lost in the eastward push which brought them to the nine islands of Eva. One curious trinket, labeled Fatu Heva, caught my eye, a squat little figure, carved in a sawed-off length of yellow ivory. I examined it closely. It had the air of being at least a hundred years old, and the concentric rings of this section showed it to be the tooth or tusk of some large animal. Where could the Marquesian carver have obtained such a lump of ivory on which to exercise his skill? Could it be possible that this was the tusk of an elephant, carved not one hundred, but many centuries ago, and preserved by the people of these distant islands, an immortal relic of the days when their ancestors left Persia or the Indian hills? I looked again. It was large enough to be part of a small tusk, but the section was flatter than any elephant ivory I had seen. What could it be? Not the tooth of a hippopotamus, it was too large for that. Not the sort of a norwhale, which shows a betraying spiral twist. Then I thought of a walrus tusk, and the story seemed clear. Seventy-five or a hundred years ago, some whaling vessel, after a venture in the northern ice, must have sailed south and put in at Fatuhiva for water or wood or fruit. They had killed walrus off Cape Lisbon or in the Katsibu Sound, and as was the habit of whalers, some of the tusks had been kept for scrimshaw work. Knowing the Polynesian passion for ivory, in Tonga it was death for any but those of the highest rank to take the teeth of a stranded sperm whale. It is not difficult to imagine the rest. A lantern-jawed Yankee harpooner, perhaps, trading his walrus tusk for a canoe-load of fruit or the favors of an exceptionally pretty girl. I was examining a paddle from Manahiki, a graceful, narrow-bladed thing, carved out of porcupine wood and set with diamonds of mother-of-pearl. When Tyree came in, "'Pretty paddle, isn't it?' he remarked. "'You won't find a more curious one in the Pacific. Notice the way that reinforcing ridge runs down the blade from the haft?' 
everything has a meaning in primitive stuff of this sort the original pattern from which this has descended probably came from a land of little trees where the paddles had to be made in two pieces blade lashed to handle look at the shape of it more like a zulu a saigi than anything else it is a weapon primarily a thrust of it would kill a naked man the manahiki people spend a lot of their time in canoes on the open sea after bonito by day and flying fish by night and these waters swarm with sharks they have developed a paddle into a weapon of defense the samoans carried a special shark club for the same purpose i ask his opinion on the disputed question of sharks whether in general the shark is a real menace to the swimmer or the paddler of a small canoe i heard a lot of loose talk he said how learned societies have offered rewards for a genuine instance of a shark attacking a man but i have seen enough to know that there is no room for argument some idiot goes swimming off a vessel in shark-infested water and talks all the rest of his life perhaps of the silly fears of others never realizing that he owes his life to the fact that none of the sharks about him chance to be more than usually hungry the really hungry shark is a raving murderer dangerous as a wounded buffalo reckless as a mad dog i have seen one tear the paddle from the hand of a man beside me and sink its teeth over and over again in a frenzy in the bottom of a heavy canoe how long do you suppose a swimmer would have lived and it's not only the big sharks that are dangerous i remember one day when a lot of us were bathing in Penurin lagoon suddenly one of the boys gave a shout and began to struggle with something in the waist-deep water clotted with blood by the time i got there a small tiger shark scarcely a yard long had gouged a piece of flesh out of his leg and continued an attack until a big kanaka seized it by the tail and waded to the beach holding the devilish little brute snapping in its jaws and writhing frantically at arm's length as he reached the dry sand the native allowed his arm to relax for an instant the shark set its teeth in his side and tore out a mouthful that nearly cost the man his life the voice of apuka was summoning us to eat kai hai she called Ari my taree's dining-room was a section of the side veranda screened off with lattices of bamboo where we found a table set for two fresh with flowers and damask Apakura sat cross-legged on a mat nearby. She was weaving a hat of native grass and looked up from her work now and then to speak to the girl who served us, admonishing, scolding, and joking in turn. Tarif followed my glance and smiled as he caught the eye of his wife. "'Probably strikes you as odd that she doesn't sit with us,' he said to me. I tried to get her into the way of it at first, but it's no good. For generations the women of her family have been forbidden to eat in the presence of men.' and the old tapu dies hard then she hates chairs when she sits with me she is wretchedly uncomfortable and bolts her food in a scared kind of way that puts me off my feed it is best to let them follow their own customs she likes to sit on the floor there and order her cousin about when they're finished they'll adjourn to the cookhouse for dinner and discuss you until your ears tingle housekeeping down here is a funny haphazard business hopeless if one demands what one had at home easy and pleasant if one is willing to compromise a bit to a man who understands the natives at all the servant question does not exist 
they will jump at a chance to attach themselves to your household. The trouble is to keep them away. It isn't wages they are after. I pay these people nothing at all for cooking and washing and looking after the place. They like to be where tea and sugar and ship biscuit are in plenty, and they like to be amused. An occasional stranger coming and going like yourself gives them no end of food for talk. I have a phonograph I let them play, and a seine I let them take out for a day's fishing now and then. Once a month, perhaps, I kill a pig and give a bit of a party, and once or twice in a year I get a bullock, and let them invite all the relatives to a real umbakai. In return for all this, they look after my fifty acres of coconuts, make my copra, do my housework, cooking, and laundry, and provide me with all the native food I can use. It strikes me as a fair bargain, from my point of view at least. It is understood that they are not to bother me unless there is work to do, or they want to see me. They never set foot in the house. My greatest trouble has been to get some idea of regularity into their heads. These people cannot understand why we prefer to eat our dinner at the same hour every day. Where contact with the white man has not changed their habits, they eat whenever they are hungry, at midnight, at four in the morning, if they chance to be awake. Even here they can't understand my feelings when dinner is an hour or two late. The cousin of Apukura took away the remnants of a dish of raw fish and brought us a platter heaped with roast bread-food, taro, yams, and sweet potatoes served in with a picture of teri akari, the sea-water and coconut sauce worthy of a place on any table. It is only the uncivilized white who turns up his nose at native food. The island's vegetables are both wholesome and delicious. It cannot be cooked better than in a Maori oven. A certain amount of European food is necessary to health, but the sallow provincial white man, who takes a sort of racial pride in living on the contents of tins, need not be surprised that the climate of the islands does not agree with him. It is the same type, usually with no other cause for pride, than the fact that he chanced to be born white, whose voice is most frequently heard disclaiming on the subject of color. Everywhere in the islands, of course, the color line exists. A subtle barrier between the races, not to be crossed with impunity. But the better sort of white man is ready to admit that God, who presumably made him, also made the native, and made the Polynesian a rather fine piece of work. Terry had stepped across with eyes open, counting the cost, realizing all that he must relinquish. He is not a man to make such a decision lightly. In his case the step meant severing the last material tie with home giving up forever the Englishman's dream of white children and an old age in the pleasant English countryside. His children, if children came to him, would have skins tinted by a hundred generations of hot sunlight, and look at him with strange dark eyes, liquid and shy, the eyes of an elder race, begotten when the world was young. His old age would be spent on this remote and forgotten bit of land, immensely isolated from the ancestral background to which most men return at last. As the shadows gathered in the evening of his life, there would be long days of reading and reflection, stretched in a steamer chair on this same veranda, while the trade hummed through the palm tops and the sea rumbled softly on the reef. At night, lying wakeful as old men do, in a hush broken only by the murmur of a lonely sea, his thoughts would wander back, a little sadly, as the thoughts of an old man must, along a hundred winding paths of memory, 
through scenes wild and lovely, savage, stern, and gay. Dimly out of the past would appear the faces of men and women, long since dead, and already only vaguely remembered, the companions of his youth, once individually vibrant with the current life, now moldering alike in forgotten graves. They would be a strangely assorted company, Tari's ghosts. Men of all races, scholars, soldiers, sportsmen, skippers of trading vessels, pearl divers of the atolls, nurses of the Red Cross, Englishmen of his own station in life, dark-eyed daughters of the islands with shining hair, and the beauty of sleek wild creatures, bewitching and soulless, half bold and half afraid. Whether for good or ill, wisely or unwisely as the case may be, no man could say that Tari had not lived. I wondered what the verdict would be when in the days to come he cast up the balance of his life. Apakura ceased her plating and began to measure off the narrow braid, delicately woven in a pattern of black and white, which would eventually be sewn in spirals to make a hat. My hat, by the way, for it had been promised to me weeks before. One fathom, two fathom, three fathoms. Another two fathoms were needed work for the odd moments of a month. Some day, in an uncertain future and on a distant island, perhaps the cabin boy of a schooner would step ashore and present me with a box containing this same hat, superbly new, decorated with a gay puggaree and lined with satin, bearing my initials in silk. Meanwhile, though I would have given much for a new hat, there was nothing to do but wait. Like other things of native make, a hat cannot be bought with money. The process of manufacture is too laborious to be other than a matter of goodwill. Think of the work that goes into one of these hats. First of all, far off in the mountains, the stalks of the ale, Eurydice verhydis, must be gathered. These are split, then thoroughly dried, and the two halves scraped thin as paper before being split again into tiny strips of fiber less than a sixteenth of an inch wide. A certain amount of the aho, depending on the pattern to be woven, must now be dyed, usually black or in a shade of brown. From a dozen to twenty of these strands, dyed and undyed, are plated into a flexible braid of which the hat is built up, a task requiring extraordinary patience and skill. Such hats are made only for relatives and close friends. If an unmarried girl gives one to a man, the gift has the same significance as the pair of earrings he would give in return. When an eighty boy appears with a new and gorgeous hat, the origin of which is veiled in doubt, village gossip hums until the truth is known. Even the classic sewing circle of New England can show no faster or more efficient work than these artless brown women. Standing knee-deep in the waters of some dashing stream, prattling, laughing, shattering the reputations of absent sisters as they pound and wring the soapy clothes. When dinner was over, Terry was filling his pipe in the living room. I took up the lamp for a glance at the titles of his shelves of books. Side by side with the transactions of the Polynesian Society and the modern works of S. Percy Smith and Macmillan Brown, I found Mariner's Tonga, Abraham Fornder's account of the Polynesian race, its origin and migration. Lieutenant William Bly's Voyage of the South Seas for the purpose of conveying the breadfruit tree to the West Indies 
in His Majesty's ship The Bounty, and the Polynesian researches of William Ellis. I took down a volume of Ellis, crossed the room to glance over my shoulder at the quaint title-page. It was evident that he loved his books. Tahiti is the most interesting of all islands, he said, as we sat down, and the best accounts of old Tahiti are those of Bly and Ellis. Bly wrote from the standpoint of a worldly man, and though he was unable to speak the language fluently, and stopped only a few months on the island, he has left an extraordinarily vivid and detailed picture of the native life before European religion and trade began their work of change. Ellis was a missionary of the finest sort, broad-minded as religious men go, inspired by the purest of motives, a close and sympathetic observer, and able to appreciate much of the beauty and interest of the old life. If you believe that one branch of mankind is justified in almost forcibly spreading its religion among the other races, and that trade should follow the Bible, you will enjoy every page of Ellis. His point of view concerning temporal matters is summed up in this volume, at the end of a chapter on Hawaii. Here it is. The intercourse with foreigners has taught many of the chiefs to prefer a bedstead to the ground, and a mattress to a mat, to sit on a chair eat at a table, use a knife and fork, etc. This we think advantageous not only to those who visit them for purposes of commerce, but to the natives themselves, and it increases their wants, and consequently stimulates to industry. There you hear the voice of the mechanical age, which began a hundred years ago and ended. I rather fancy when we fired the last shots of the war. Increase their wants, advertise, speed up production, whatever the implacable cost make the ways smooth for the swift wheels of progress. Those are the germs of a disease from which the world may need another century to recover. But the change in these islands was only the insignificant corollary of a greater change throughout the world. Ellis and his kind were no more than the inevitable instruments of a harsh providence. Ellis's book was published in 1831, during the eighty-nine years that have passed since that date, we have seized the islands and profited largely by them, as coaling stations, as naval bases, as sources of valuable raw materials, markets for our surplus manufactured goods. What have we done for the natives in return? Instead of the industrious, piously happy, and increasing communities foreseen by the missionaries as the result of their efforts, one finds a depressed and dying people robbed of their old beliefs, and secretly skeptical of the new. We who conduct our wars in so humane and chivalrous a spirit have taught them to abolish human sacrifice and to stop the savage fighting which horrified the first messengers of Christianity. But in the case of the islands of which Ellis wrote, the benefits of civilization end here. Infanticide is now a punishable crime, and really practiced, but perhaps it is well to have children and to kill a certain number of them, as to be rendered sterile by imported disease. After all, infanticide, repulsive though it may be, is only a primitive form of the birth control which is making its appearance in Europe and America. As the continents, the white man's islands, approach the limit of population. As for true religious faith of the kind which the missionaries sincerely hope to instill that plays in the life of the Kanaka 
a part of about the same importance as in the life of the average white man. Don't think I am cynical in saying this. I respect and envy men who possess real faith. They are the ones by whom every great task is accomplished. But the religion of the native is less than skin deep. His observance of the Sabbath day, a survival of the old tempu, his church-going and singing of hymns, satisfying the social instinct, the love of gossip, the desire to be seen in fine clothes, replace the old-time dance, wrestling matches, and exhibitions of the Aori. You have seen something of the outer islands, where the people are half-savage even today, still swayed by what we call heathen superstition. Now consider Tahiti, where the people for more than a hundred years have been subjected to the exhortations of an intensity almost unparalleled. If it is possible to inject our religion into their blood, it must have been accomplished in Tahiti, but in my opinion, the efforts of three generations of missionaries have produced a result surprisingly small on this island, the most civilized of the South Pacific, where the heathen superstition is far from dead today. Before the schooners took to Penuri Lagoon, we used to spend the hurricane season in Papati. I never cared much for towns. I usually put in the time wandering about the more remote districts. Civilization has barely scratched the inner life of Tahiti. Men who wear trousers and go to church by day would fear to sleep at night unless a lamp burned in the house to repel the Vera Eno and ghostly Tambapuo of their ancestors. If a girl falls ill, the native doctor, a lineal descendant of the heathen priest, has called in. "'What have you done during the past week?' he asks. "'You spoke harshly to that old woman.' "'Ah, I knew. There was a cause. He administers a remedy in the form of a certain bath or a sprinkling with the water of a young coconut, and takes his leave. If the girl recovers, it is a remarkable instance of the doctor's skill. She dies?' It is proof that her offense was too grave to be remedied. Perhaps a ghost walks and the native doctor is again consulted. It is your wife who comes to trouble you at night. How was she buried? Evidently the grave was opened and the body found to be lying face down. When turned on her back and again covered with the earth, the lady is content and seizes her disruptible prowlings. I am not convinced that all of these things are absurdity. I told you, when we were on the schooner about some of my curious experiences in this group, there are happenings fully as strange on Tahiti and Moria. You must have heard of what the natives call Vera Eno, a vague variety of devil, a sort of earth spirit, quite unhuman and intensely malignant. The people are not fond of discussing this subject, and their beliefs have become so tangled that it is impossible to get a straightforward story. But as nearly as I can make out, numbers of these Vera Eno are thought to lie in wait whenever a man or woman is dying, struggling fiercely with one another in the effort to catch and devour the departing human soul. If the spirit makes its escape the first time, the ravening watchers do not give up hope, but linger about the body to which the soul is apt to return from time to time during the day or two following death. The human soul at this stage is considered nearly as malignant and dangerous as the Vera Eno. You can see what a garbled business it is. Sometimes an earth spirit enters the corrupted body and walks abroad at night. On one subject the natives all agree, 
the struggles of the praying spirits and the human soul are apt to be marked by splashes and pools of blood whose blood i have never learned to my satisfaction a friend of mine an educated and skeptical englishman in whose words i have the utmost confidence was the witness of one of these blood-splashing affairs he lived on mura just across from tahiti hapiti was his village i think one afternoon he whistled to his fox terrier and strolled to a nearby house where the body of a native an old fellow he had liked lay in state surrounded by mourning relatives as he stood on the veranda the dog began to growl furiously and at the same moment the oldest man present a sort of a doctor in authority on spiritual matters shouted out suddenly that everyone must leave the house the native explained afterward that he had caught a glimpse of something like a small comet a shapeless and luminous body trailing a fiery tail rushing horizontally towards the rear of the building the people gathered outside in a bit of a panic the fox terrier seemed to have gone mad on the porch alternately cowing and leaping forward with frenzied growls towards some invisible thing all at once there was a great racket of overturned furniture inside the house and the next moment the englishman saw gouts of what looked like blood splashing over the outer wall and floor and of the veranda the dog was covered it was a week before his coat was clean the net result of the affair was that the veranda needed a cleaning a couple of tables were overturned and the body of the old man considerably disturbed but its most curious feature is the fact that my friend suspecting native trickery and the desire to impress a white man took a specimen of the blood across to papati where he got the hospital people to examine it it was human blood beyond a doubt what do you make of that the other evening when i was having a yarn with apakura she told me about another kind of varroino who figures as the villain in the tale of a polynesian cinderella it may interest you a great many years ago on ahuahu there was a man named tatu one of apakura's family a renowned fighting man who dabbled in sorcery when there were no wars to be fought tall handsome and famous it was no wonder that tatu was pursued by all the island girls scheming sisters in particular who went so far as to build a hut near where he lived hoping to catch the eye of the hero they took their finest ornaments and robes of tapa and went to live in the hut accompanied by their little sister Tedrina, who was to act as a drudge about the house young Tedrera had no designs on tatu and she possessed no finery to make herself beautiful in his eyes but one day when she was gathering wood in the bush she chanced to pass stopping to speak with her he was struck with her goodness and beauty and from that time the two met every day in the forest the older sisters meanwhile were the victims of a mischievous earth spirit which haunted the vicinity and visited them in the guise of tatu they were triumphant when it was known that they had won the warriors favors all their friends would be wild with jealousy they could not resist printing themselves before their little sister tatu loves us they told her he comes every day when you are off gathering wood but that is impossible said tetera for tatu is my lover he meets me each day in the forest the older girls laughed scornfully at this but tetera said no more until she met her lover in the evening 
When she told him what her sisters had said, he laughed. It is Vera Eno, he informed her, a mischievous spirit whose true appearance is that of a hideous old man. Tomorrow I will prove to your sisters that it is not I who visit them. That night, Tatu sat up late, weaving a magic net of hibiscus bark, a net which had the property of causing a spirit to assume its true shape. Next afternoon, Tatu and Tetrera stole up to the house, where the spirit, in the form of a splendid warrior, was talking and laughing with the two sisters. Tatu cast the net. Next moment the spirit was howling and struggling in the magic meshes, unable to escape, moaning as it shriveled and changed into the appearance of an old man, gray-bearded, trembling, and hideous. The two sisters shrank back in loathing and mortification, while Tatu told them that he had chosen Titerera to be his wife. As he finished his story, Tyree rose, crossed the room to a bookshelf, and returned to hand me a volume bound in worn yellow leather. "'I am going to turn in now,' he remarked. "'We'll go fishing in the morning, if you will plan to stop over. Take this to your room. If you are not sleepy, it is worth running over.' Bly's account of the Voyage of the Bounty, published at Dublin in 1792. Propped up in bed with a lamp burning on the table beside me, I opened Bly's quaint an earnest account of his voyage, the mutiny, the commander's passage in an open boat from Tonga to Timor, and the settlement of the mutineers on Picatron Island. I have been made familiar by a voluminous and sentimental literature, but I had never before come across the story of Bly's residence among the natives of Tahiti one hundred and thirty-two years ago. More than any other eastern island, perhaps Tahiti, was the cradle of the oceanic race, called the Lap of God, by Kamakaki, the fabled Hawaiian voyager who discovered in the southern group the fountain of eternal youth. Knowing something of the island as it is today, I listened with interest when Terry remarked, Civilization has barely scratched the inner life of Tahiti. Bly was a close observer blessed with insight and a pleasant sense of humor. At the time of his visit, the people were untouched by European influence. It is interesting to check his observation against what any traveler may see nowadays, to judge for oneself how deeply the civilization of Europe has been able to modify the peculiarities of Polynesian character. The family of Pomer, of which the chief two, called Utu by Cook, Tina by Bly, was the founder, owed its rise to power largely to the friendship of the English. Bly often entertained Tina and his wife, Idea, on board the bounty. They must have been amusing parties. Tina was fed by one of his attendants, who sat by him for that purpose, and I must do him the justice to say he kept his attendant constantly employed. There was indeed little reason to complain of want of appetite to any of my guests. As the women are not allowed to eat in the presence of the men, Idea dined with some of her companions about an hour afterward in private, except that her husband, Tina, favored them with his company and seemed to have entirely forgotten that he had already dined. In his rambles about the island, Bly noticed precisely what strikes one today. In any house we wish to enter, we always experienced a kind reception, and without officiousness. The Othetians have the most perfect easiness of manners, equally free from forwardness and formality. 
When they offer refreshments, if they are not accepted, they do not think of offering them the second time, for they have not the least idea of the ceremonious kind of refusal which expects a second invitation. Bly was not deceived like the French philosophers who read Bougainville's account of Tahiti and rhapsodized about the beauty of a life free from all restraint. He remarked the deep-rooted system of class inherent in the island race, a system of which the outward marks are gone, but which is far from dead today. Among the people so free from ostentation as the Othelians, and the manners are so simple and natural, the strictness with which the punctilios of rank are observed is surprising. I know not if any action, however meritorious, can elevate a man above the class in which he was born, unless he were to acquire sufficient power to confer dignity on himself. If any woman of the inferior classes has a child by an eerie, it is not suffered to live. Bly's observation on the gay and humorous character of the people and their extraordinary levity might have been written yesterday. Some of my constant visitors had observed that we always drank His Majesty's health as soon as the cloth was removed, but they were by this time become so fond of wine that they would frequently remind me of the health of the middle by dinner by calling out King George Erie, no Brittany, and would banter me if the glass was not filled to the brim. Nothing could exceed the mirth and joyality of these people when they met on board. One day Tinga told Bly of an island to the eastward of Ori four or five days sail, and that there were large animals upon it with eight legs. The truth of this account he very strenuously insisted upon and wished me to go thither with him. As I was at a loss to know whether or not, Tina himself gave credit to this whimsical and fabulous account. For though they have credulity sufficient to believe anything, however improbable, they are at the same time so much addicted to the species of wit which we call humbug that it is frequently difficult to distinguish whether they are in jest or in earnest. On another occasion, while walking near a place of burial, Bly was surprised by a sudden outcry of grief. As I expressed a desire to see the distressed person, Tina took me to the place, where I found a number of women, one of whom was the mother of a young female child that lay dead. On seeing us, their mourning not only immediately ceased, but, to my astonishment, they all burst into an immoderate fit of laughter, and while we remained, appeared much diverted at our visit. I told Tina the woman had no sorrow for her child, otherwise her grief would not have so easily subsided, on which he jocosely told her to cry again. They did not, however, resume their mourning in our presence. This strange behavior would incline us to think them hard-hearted and unfeeling, did we not know that they are fond parents, in general, very affectionate. It is therefore to be ascribed to their extreme levity of disposition, and it is probable that death does not appear to them with so many terrors as it does to people of a more serious cast. When the surgeon of the bounty died and was buried ashore, some of the chiefs were very inquisitive about what was to be done with the surgeon's cabin, on account of apparitions. They said when a man died in Otahili, and was carried over to the Tupapau, that as soon as night came he was surrounded by spirits, and if any person went there by himself, they would devour him. Therefore, they said, 
not less than two people together should go into the surgeon's cabin for some time. I thought of Terry and his tales of Vera Unio. Four generations of schools and churches have failed to work a metamorphosis. I read on till drowsiness overcame me and the pages blurred before my eyes. It was late, and the night was very calm. A vagrant night breeze wandering down from the mountains rustled gently among the fronds of the old palms around the house. When the rustling ceased, so faint as to be almost inaudible, I could hear the far-off whisper of the sea. The world about me was asleep. I roused myself with an effort, adjusted the mosquito net, and blew out the lamp. End of chapter 13《Chapter Fourteen of Fairylands of the South Seas》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Fourteen In the Valley of Vitea. It is not easy to analyze the magic which cousins every traveler into believing that he is the first to see Tahiti with clear eyes. One feels that it is made up of nature in a mood of unearthly loveliness, of a sense of ancient and unalterable life, of a realization that strange beliefs persist under a semblance of Christianity, of the lure of a race whose confidence the white man can never fully gain, the mail steamers, the wireless, the traders, the scattering of French officials. These things are a mere play of shadows on the surface. Even the churches, I was tempted to say, but the church plays more than a shadowy part in the life of the native whose religion, at the present day, is a singular blending of Christian doctrine and old heathen belief. The Tahitian reads his Bible, he has no other book, and sings loudly every Sunday in church, but the dead are still things of horror in his mind. Sorcerers masquerading as doctors still carry on a brisk trade and tau tau the great-headed is still a living presence in the valley of panauru when the people of the society islands accepted christianity a century ago they did so with reservations of which the missionaries perhaps were not aware here and there as at fatewe on muria there was a burning of idols but a great mass of material old gods and heathen weapons was stored in secure hiding-places among the hills Today, after three generations of increasing European influence, hundreds of natives know of these caves and repair to them for purposes of their own. Yet a white man might spend his life on Tahiti without a glimpse of a senate-bound Oruro or a slender ironwood spear. My friend Arima is typical. The widow of a Yankee skipper, the owner of a neat wooden villa in Papati, where she appears regularly on her way to church in shoes, stockings, and a black silk gown. She finds it necessary, from time to time, to cast off the unnatural manners of Europe and live as she was meant to live, to be herself an elderly and delightful savage. When the mood comes, she closes the villa in Pepiti, gathers the willing members of her family, and repairs to her native house, far off on the peninsula of Taiapu. The house of Arima stands on a river bank, shaded by a pair of mango trees, dark green and immemorially old. The roof is thatched, 
with braided fronds of coconut, breezes play through the lofty single room, bare of furniture and floored with mats spread on white coral gravel, leveled and packed. Past the veranda on which the family sleeps through the warm hours of the day, the river flows out gently to the sea, a broad still water, deep and glassy clear, peopled with darting shoals of fish, mullet, young pompano, and natto, the trout of the South Seas. Opposite the river mouth, the reef is broken by a pass, through which the steady lines of combers sweep in to crash and tumble on the bar. Morning and afternoon, the breakers are alive with naked children, shouting and glistening brown in the sunlight as they ride the waves. Inland, the valley marking the river's course is lost in a maze of broken and fantastic peaks. Seaward, bordering the green and blue of the lagoon, the snowy line of the reef stretches off endlessly, and beyond a three-league expanse of bright sea, the headlands of Tahiti, Nui, rise in vast swelling curves up and up to the perpetual clouds which veil the heights. Under a bright sun at midday, when the palm-tops toss to the trade which paints the lagoon, in the deep passes and over the patches of sandy bottom, with ruffled sapphire and emerald, and sets the white caps to dancing beyond the reef, or in the calm of night, with the moon hanging low over the pinnacles of basalt, when the polished surface of the lagoon is broken by the plunge and swirl of heavy fish, and native songs, rising and falling in savage cadences, float out across the water. It is a place not easily forgotten. It was still dark when we rose, Marie and I, the brothers of Maurice had returned from the reef, and the ovens behind the cookhouse were smoking, for in these places the hour of the day's first meal is set by the return of the fishermen. I took one shuddering plunge into the river, dressed myself in a shirt, a waistcloth, and a pair of hobnailed boots, and squatted with the rest to consume a fresh-caught mackerel and a section of breadfruit, dipped in a common bowl of sauce. Maurice sucked his fingers and stood up, calling to the dogs. Arima glanced at me over the back of a large fish she was gnawing, holding it with both hands. "'Go, you two, she said. You stay,' replied Marie, as she turned to take the path to the mountains. The oceanic tongue possesses no other words for parting. We followed the river across the flatlands of the coast. Dawn was flushing in the east. The profile of lofty ridges, fern-clad and incredibly serrated, grew sharp against the sky. The minas were awakening. From the thick foliage of orange and mango trees came their extraordinary morning chorus, a thousand voices, whistling, screaming, and chattering that it was time the assembly broke up for the foraging of another day. In one place, where a turn of the path brought us suddenly to the edge of a still reach of water, a pair of native ducks, Anis speculacosa, rose vertically on beating wings and sped off over the palm-tops. A little further on, where volcanic boulders began to appear through the alluvial soil, and the river leaped and foamed over the first rapids, a family of Tahitian jungle-fowl, led by a splendid burnished cock, sprang out of the grass and streamed away in easy, rapid flight towards the hills. The dogs bound forward and stopped, whining as they watched the wild chickens dwindle to speeding dots. The groves of coconut palms and open pasture land were behind us now. The valley was narrowing, hemmed in by thousand-foot cliffs to which a tangle of vegetation clung. The river became a torrent, boiling, 
and waist-deep, plunging over cataracts roaring down dark rapids under a roof of matted trees. Giant hibiscus a yard through, too remote to tempt the axe of the canoe-builder, candlenut, barringtonia, and mape. The island chestnut with bowls like fluted columns of a temple. The trail wound back and forth across the river, over the trunks of fallen trees, around masses of rock, tumbled from the cliffs above, mounting higher and higher into the heart of the island. Once, as we stopped to rest, I looked back and caught a glimpse of the sea, a wedge of blue, far behind us and below. The dogs had begun to range ahead, for they knew that any moment we might start a sounder of wild pig. I was growing tired. It was not easy to follow Marie as his own gait. He walked with the rapid, springing tread of a mountain man. When he stooped to clear a low, branching limb, or loped off a section of creeper with an easy swing of his machete, I admired the play of muscles on his back, rippling powerfully under the smooth brown skin, silken and unblemished, unless it be by scars. The skin of these people is not like ours, but softer and closer in texture, seeming like marble to glimmer with reflected light. The gorge grew narrower. We rounded a buttress of jointed basalt, and came suddenly into the light and open of a lonely valley. A quarter of a mile wide and twice as long, set high above the sea and hemmed in by untrodden ridges, it lay here uninhabited and forgotten in a silence broken only by the roar of savage cataracts and the far-off bellowing of wild bulls. Yet man had been here. Along the base of the cliffs we found the terraced stone of his dwellings, the blocks of volcanic rock, pried apart by the roots of huge old trees. Moray was squatting on his heels beside me, contemplating in silence these relics of an older time. Finally he turned his head. Those stones are very old he remarked. They have been here always, since the beginning. Men placed them here, and men slept on them, but not the men of my people. My thoughts dwelt on the old idle tales I had heard of the lizard-men, of the dark-skinned aborigines, the Manahomi, said to have been in possession of the land when the eyes of Polynesian voyagers first rested on cloudy Orofina. There were other tales, too, of a later day, of a tribe of men dwelling in the valleys, neither tasting fish nor setting foot on the beach except when, at certain intervals, they were permitted to come down to worship by the sea. Even today it needs no effort of the imagination to see two distinct types among the island people, men and women of the kind one considers typically Polynesian, tall, clean-limbed, and light-brown, with clear dark eyes, straight or waving hair, and heads not differing greatly from the heads of Europeans. Another kind of negroid or Melanesian, cast, short, squat, and many shades darker in complexion, thick-lipped and apish, with muddy eyes, kinky hair, and flattened, underdeveloped heads. And, strangely enough, after more than a century of missions and leveling foreign influence, the dark and awkward people seem still to fill the humbler walks of life. They are the servants and dependents, the feeders of pigs, the carriers of wood and water, Great stature, physical beauty, and light complexion are still the hallmarks of aristocratic birth. Writing of the islands a hundred years ago, old Ellis, the often quoted closest observer of them all, remarked, It is a singular fact in the physiology of the inhabitants of this part of the world 
that the chiefs and persons of hereditary rank and influence of the islands are almost without exception as much superior to the peasantry or common people in stateliness dignified deportment and physical strength as they are in rank and circumstances although they are not elected to their station on account of their personal endowments but derive the rank and elevation from their ancestry this is the case with most of the groups of the pacific but particularly so in tahiti and the adjacent isles the father of the late king was six feet four inches high pomari was six feet two the present king of ratatina is equally tall their limbs are generally well formed and the whole figure is proportioned to their height which renders the difference between the rulers and their subjects so striking that bougainville and some others have supposed they were a distinct race the descendants of a superior people who at a remote period had conquered the aborigines and perpetuated their supremacy there is a curious inconsistency in the matter of complexion for in the old days a dark skin was considered the sign of a strong warlike and masterly man ellis records an extract from an old song if dark be the complexion of the mother the sun will sound the conch sail and yet on the same page he observes that the majority of the reigning family in ratatina are not darker than the inhabitants of some parts of southern europe while moray and i rested among the ruins of the ancient settlement the dogs had been more usefully engaged my musings were disturbed by a sudden burst of squeals punctuated by exciting yelpings moray sprang to his feet long knife in hand it was only a small pig a sixty-pounder but he was bursting fat stuffed with by apples fallen from the great tree under which he had been feeding the dogs had him by the ears when he arrived a thrust of the machete put an end to his short and idyllic life i hung him from a branch and skinned him while marie went off in search of fee presently he returned carrying on his shoulder a stout pole of hibiscus from either end of which swung a bunch of mountain plantains like huge thick bananas the size of quart bottles and bright yellowish red there was a clump of palms nearby another sign perhaps of man's former occupation the relics of unnumbered vegetable generations we had coconuts to drink pork and fave were at hand and plenty of fresh-water crayfish to be had in the river in the islands the obtaining of food is always the signal for a meal Mulray beckoned to me and led the way to the river where he readjusted his waistcloth to leave a kind of apron hanging in front and plunged up to his armpits in the still water with the apron spread as a trap for the darting crayfish he moved slowly along the grassy and overhanging bank of the stream stopping every moment or two to hand a struggling victim up to me this little fresh-water lobster is one of the most delicious shellfish in the world of the same dimensions as the french ecrivasse and not unlike it in flavor in fifteen minutes we had enough and the work preparing our meal began i gathered wood and started a fire against the face of rock marie cut a section of giant bamboo half filled it with water threw in the crayfish and stood it beside the fire to boil our meal was genuinely primitive i had cigarettes matches and a paper of salt stowed in the tuckama pamaru excepting our knives we had nothing else that the rudest of savages might not have possessed turning up the earth with his machete my companion scraped out a shallow trench a mori oven 
He set a ring of stones about the edge, lined the inside with pebbles, and filled the hole with coals from our campfire. While the coals glowed, heating the earth and stones, he cut off a loin and hindquarter of pork, wrapped the meat carefully in plantain leaves, and selected half a dozen of the riper plantains for our meal. Finally, when the oven was thoroughly hot, he scraped away the coals from the middle, laid in the leaf raft pork, surrounded by a ring of plantains, pushed the hot stones close to the food, and covered the hole with a thick layer of plantain leaves. We ate the crayfish, boiled to a bright scarlet, while the balance of our meal was cooking. I added salt to the boiled-down liqueur in the bottom of the bamboo, and dipped in this natural sauce. The first course whetted our appetites for the tender meat and juicy plantains, which soon came from the oven. As we lay smoking after our meal, I could see that Marie had something in his mind and was debating whether or not to speak. Finally he began, cautiously and with an air of skeptical restraint at first, but with more and more assuredness as he saw that I listened seriously to his story. "'The old people say,' he remarked, pointing to the head of the valley where the cliffs narrowed to a deep crack through which the river rushed, that far up in this same valley beyond the upper gorge you see a spirit dwells, one of the heathen spirits which are as old as the land.' You and I may not believe in these things, but it is good when the evenings are long to listen to the stories of the old men. The name of the spirit is Tefatu. Some call him Vera Eno, saying that he dogs the footsteps of the living and preys upon the souls of the newly dead. But that is not true, for many times in the memory of my fathers he has been known to aid those in perplexity or distress. The old men believe that if a traveler— lost in these mountains at nightfall, calls on Tefatu for succor. The spirit will appear before him in the likeness of a pale, moving fire, and lead him in safety down to the sea. Once in sight of the sea, the man must cry out in a loud voice, You have aided me, Tefatu, and I am content. Stop here, and I will go on my way. It is not good to neglect these words of parting. Sometimes he is seen at night, flying from ridge to ridge of the mountain, a great glowing head, trailing a thin body of fire. Long ago, during the childhood of my grandmother, Tafatu left this land for a space of years. Men said that he had flown to Hawaii, but now he is returned beyond a doubt. High up among the cliffs I found the cave in which he sleeps by day. These eyes of mine have seen the old lord lying there among the whitened heads of men. I looked and turned away quickly, for my stomach was cold with fear. I cannot tell you clearly, Maurie went on, in answer to my obvious question, for I was greatly afraid. It seemed to me that he was a figure of wood, longer and thinner than a man, black with age, covered with carved patterns, and bound in places with close wrappings of nappy the fine senate my people have forgotten how to make. The place was full of bones, scores of men had been slain, and their bodies offered there, as was the custom of our old kings. Once, not many years ago, a wise man came here from the islands of Hawaii, an old man, bearded and wearing spectacles. It was his work to write down the names of our ancestors, and he spoke our tongue, though haltingly and with a strange twist. He lived with us for a time, and we grew fond of him. 
for he was a simple man who made us laugh with his jokes and was kind to the children. One evening I told him how I had found the place of Tefatu. As I spoke, his eyes grew bright behind their windows of glass, and when I had done he begged me, in great excitement, to lead him to the cave, offering a hundred of your dollars if I could prove that I had spoken true words. I was younger then, and in need of money, for I was courting a girl. We went together into the mountains, but as we grew nearer the place something within me made me hesitate, and I grew afraid. In the end I deceived that man who was my friend, telling him that I could not find the way. He was indeed a wise man. Another would have mocked me for a liar and a teller of idle tales. But he only smiled, looking at me kindly. He knew that my words were true, and that I feared to betray the sleeping place of the old lord. Mulray rose to his feet with the sigh of a man who had eaten well and is deprived of his rightful siesta. He shouldered his ponderous load of fay, which I could scarcely rise from the ground, and led the way toward the sea while I followed, bearing the remnants of the pig. It was noon when we reached the flat lands of the coast. A quarter of a mile above the house of Arima, we stopped to watch a large canoe loaded with a mound of seine, gliding up the river, followed by a fleet of smaller craft. An old woman stood in the bow, directing the proceedings with shrill volubility. She was the proprietor of the net, a village character at once kindly and tyrannical, widow of one chief and mother of another. As her canoe grew abreast of us, she gave the command to halt and spread the net. The river at this point is almost without current, very still and clear. Marie and I sat on the high bank, too tired to do more than play the part of spectators. They grounded the big canoe just below where we sat, putting one end of the Seine ashore and paddling slowly across the river while the net was laid out in a deep, sagging curve downstream. One after another the smaller canoes were beached, and the people, half-naked and carrying spears, ran along the bank to take to the water a few hundred yards above. The river was alive with them, splashing and shouting as they drove the fish toward the trap. Next moment the bright shoals began to appear beneath us, the sunlight glinting on burnished sides as they darted this way and that by hundreds seeking a way of escape. A run of mullet flashed downstream, saw the net, turned, and were headed back toward the sea. A series of cries went up, Aye, aye! as fifty or sixty of the beautiful silvery fish leaped the line of floats and dashed away to safety. The old headwoman, dressed in a mother hubbard of respectable black and a rather handsome hat, was swimming easily in three fathoms of water. Nothing escaped her watchful eye. Ara! she shouted angrily. The best fish are getting away. Hurry, you lazy ones! Splash the water below the net, or we will not have a mullet left. Remember, that when the haul is over, he who has not worked shall have no fish. As the line of beaters drew near, the men in the big canoe paddled upstream and across behind them, throwing out net as they went, until the frightened fish and a score of swimmers were encircled. The two ends of the seine were now close together on the bank, and half a dozen men began to haul in with a will, their efforts causing the circle to narrow slowly and steadily. Looking down from the high banks, one could see children of ten or twelve, stark naked and carrying tiny spears in their hands, swimming like frogs a fathom deep in the water, pursuing the darting fish. Now and then a youngster would come to the surface with a shrill cry of triumph, 
holding aloft the toy spear on which was transfixed a six-inch fish. The people of the islands, as a rule, are neither fast nor showy swimmers. One can see prettier swimming any summer afternoon on the Long Island shore, but the Polynesian is at home in the water in a way the white man can never match. I watched an old woman, all of seventy and wearing a black blouse, girded tightly to her waist with a peru, treading water at the lower end of the net, where the fish were beginning to concentrate. She was as much at her ease as though she had been lying on her veranda exchanging gossip with a neighbor. Each time she thought the headwoman's eyes were turned away, she reached over the net, seized a fish, and stuffed it into her blouse, until a flapping bulge hung down over her peru. But old Tinamara's eyes were sharp. Enough, she cried, half laughing and half in anger. Are terra vanayi. Perhaps she thought to get a string of fish, too, for that worthless son-in-law of hers. At length the seine lay in two great piles on the beach, and only a bulging pocket, filled with a pulsating mass of silver, remained in the river. Under the direction of Tinamara, the fish were divided into little piles, strung on bits of hibiscus bark, and apportioned among the people, according to the size of their families and the amount of help they had given in the hall. For herself, she reserved a considerable share, for her household was large, and, as the owner of the net, she was entitled to a full half, more than she loaded into the big canoe. It was early afternoon when we laid down our burdens in the cookhouse and stripped for a swim. The others were awakening from their siesta a flock of brown children, all vaguely related to the family of Arima, followed us to the river, carrying miniature surfboards. Next moment they were in the water, splashing and shouting as they paddled downstream toward where the surf broke on the bar. Tegenau, the pretty sister of Amori, passed us with a rush and leaped feet first from the high bank. She rose to the surface thirty yards away shouting a challenge to catch her before she could reach the opposite shore. Her brother and I dove together, raced across the river, and had nearly overtaken the girl when she went under like a grebe. I was no match for her at this game. Underwater she could swim as fast as I, and was a hundred times more at home. I gave up the pursuit and landed for a sunning among the warm rocks of the point. Out where the seas reared for the landward rush, the black heads of children appeared and disappeared. I could hear the joyous screams of others, flattened on their boards and racing toward me, buried in flying spray. The old woman I had seen helping herself to fish was coming down the river, paddling an incredibly small canoe, laden with an enormous bunch of bananas and four kerosene tins of water. She lived a mile down the coast, and, like many of her neighbors, braved the surf gaily to supply her house with fresh water from the river. The gunwale of her canoe seemed to clear the water by no more than a couple of inches. I watched with some anxiety, thinking of the feelings of an American grandmother in the same situation. She ceased to paddle at the river mouth and watched her chance, while the frail dugout rose and fell in the wash of a half-dozen big seas. Then, in a momentary lull, she dug her paddle into the water. I sat up to watch. A boy standing in the shadows nearby shouted in encouragement. At first I thought that she had chosen her moment well. The canoe passed the white water, topped a little wave without swamping, and was seemingly out of danger. But suddenly a treacherous sea sprang up from nowhere, rearing a tossing crest. It was too late to retreat. Certain disaster lay ahead. 
stoically, without a sign of dismay, the paddler held her craft bow in. The canoe rose wildly against the foaming wall, seemed to hang for an instant almost vertically, and then canoe, cargo, and old woman disappeared in the froth. The boy screamed in ecstasy as he galloped to the shallows to lend a hand. The other children ceased their play, and soon the canoe and its recovered cargo were brought ashore. They emptied the dugout and filled the tins with fresh water. I heard the old woman laugh shrilly as she wrung her clothes on the beach. Presently, coached by a dozen amused spectators, she made a second attempt and passed the surf without a wetting. When I saw her last, she was paddling off steadily to the west. I was dozing among the rocks when a ringing whistle startled me, and I looked up to see a bird, like a large sandpiper, alight on the beach and begin to feed, running briskly after the receding waves or springing into the air for a short flight when threatened by a rush of water. It was a wandering tattler, and no bird was ever better named. Solitary in its habits, except in the breeding season, when it resorts to northern lands, so remote that its nest and eggs are still, I believe, unknown. It travels south at the approach of winter, making lonely passages across some of the widest stretches of ocean in the world, to Hawaii, to the Galapagos, to the Marquises, and probably to the remote southern islands of Polynesia. What obscure sense enables the migrating bird to follow its course far out of sight of land? In France, I have flown side by side with wild geese, heading steadily southward above the sea of clouds. It seemed to me that, like the pilot of an airplane, they might guide themselves in a general way by the sun, the stars, or the look of the land below, an idea borne out by the fact that geese become lost and confused in a fog. But in considering a bird like the carrier pigeon or the tattler, all such theorizing comes to an end. No general sense of north and south could guide the tattler to the lonely landfalls of the South Pacific. His wanderings, like the migration of the golden plover, or the instinct of the shearwater, which sends him unerringly on the darkest night of storm to his individual burrow in the cliffs, must be classed among the inexplicable mysteries of nature. On a road which passes close to the house of Arima, I found Tejano in conversation with the driver of a Chinese cart. She was bargaining for a watermelon. The Chinaman stood out for three francs. She offered two. Enough of talking, she said firmly. The melon is the best you have, but it is green. I will give you two francs. A tora tota, muttered the proprietor of the melon indifferently. Toata means a franc but is obviously a corruption of quarter, for the dollar passed current here long before the money of France. Look at my clothes, pleaded the deceitful girl, changing her tactics suddenly. I am a poor woman who cannot afford to pay the prices you expect from the chief. Come, dear Tinito, give me the melon for two francs. The Chinaman shrugged his shoulders and glanced at me. The glint in his narrow eye might have meant, Ah, these women, what's the use? He sighed for a moment, while Tejito looked at him pleadingly. He was silent. "'Take the melon,' he said. "'Give me two francs. I must be on my way. But do not think you have deceived me, cunning woman. I know that you are not poor, for only yesterday your brother sold the copra from your land.' Without a sign of embarrassment, the girl opened her hand and held up a hundred-franc note. Ah, "'You are rich,' remarked the Chinaman, as he undid an oilcloth wallet 
and stripped the change from a substantial roll of bills. I knew it. Are you not ashamed to practice such deceit? But Tehenato only tucked the melon under her arm with a triumphant smile. It is a curious study to watch the contact of Chinese and Polynesian races separated by the most profound of gulfs, yet possessing the meeting ground of a common love of bargaining. All through the French islands you will find Chinamen scattered singularly or in little groups, through the windward and leeward societies, the Marquis, among the distant atolls of the Pompidou, in the remote Gimbales, in Tupay, Raterlu, and lonely Ramitera. They are keepers of small stores, for the most part, where you may see them interrupted at their eternal task of copra-making to exchange a box of matches for a single coconut, or to haggle for a quarter of an hour over a matter of five sous. Patient, painstaking, and unobtrusive, existing in inconceivable squalor, without the common pleasures which enable most of us to tolerate our lives. They seem to be impelled by motives far more profound than the longing for material gain, by a species of idealism equally incomprehensible to the native and to the visitor of European race. It is not beyond possibility that in the course of a few more generations it will be the native islander who lingers here and there, isolated in communities principally Chinese, for the islanders, superb physically, are the least prolific of men while the weedy little Tinito, who brings his own women with him, or succeeds with his own peculiar knack, in obtaining women from a population which regards him with amused contempt, surrounds himself with children in as short a time as nature allows. I have sometimes thought that the secret of the Chinaman's dogged and self-denying labors might lie here, traceable to his cult of ancestor worship. To become a revered ancestor one must have children, and in order to bring up properly a large family of children, one must spend one's life in unceasing toil. I doubt that Europeans in large numbers will ever be tempted to make the islands their home. The life is too alien, the change too great. As things are, the relation of Polynesian and Chinese amounts to a subtle contest for the land, a struggle of which both parties are aware. The native, incapable of abstract thought, feels and resents it vaguely, to the Chinaman, whose days are spent in meditation, undisturbed by the automatic labors of his body. The issue is no doubt clear-cut. The native is by far the more attractive of the two, clean, kindly, selfish, jolly, childish, well-bred, and pleasing to the eye. But the Chinaman possesses the less attractive qualities which make for the survival of a race, the industry, the unselfishness, the capacity to live for an idea, and in the end, if only by force of numbers, he will win. Looking into the future, one can see the eastern islands populated by Chinese, as our own islands of Hawaii have been populated with immigrants from Japan. They are dying anyway, and they won't work. The commercial gentleman will tell you, here is rich cane land, needing only labor to produce bountifully, and the world needs sugar. Perhaps this view is correct myself. I feel that the question is debatable. There are certain parts of the world, like our American mountains, deserts, and lonely stretches of coast, which seem planned for the spiritual refreshment of mankind, places from which one carries away a new serenity and the sense of a yearning for beauty satisfied. Ever since the days of Cook, the islands of the South Sea have charmed the white man, explorers, naturalists, traders, 
and the rough crews of whaling vessels. The strange beauty of these little islands, insignificant so far as commercial exploitation is concerned, seems worthy of preservation. And the native paddling his outlandish canoe, or lounging in picturesque attitudes before his house, is indispensable to the scene. If the day comes when his canoe lies rotting on the beach, and his house is tenanted by industrious Chinese, though the same jagged peaks rise against the sky and the same seas thunders lazily along the reef, when the anchor drops and the call comes to go ashore, I, for one, shall hesitate. In the Cook Group, six hundred miles west of Tahiti, the prospect is less depressing, for the British have adopted a policy of exclusion and made it impossible for the native to sell his land. The Cook Islander, reinforced here and there with a dash of white blood, and undiscouraged by a competition he is not fitted to meet, seems to be holding his own. The reason is clear. The native has been little tampered with, left in possession of his land, and protected rigidly against epidemics like the influenza of 1918, which ravaged the island populations wherever infected vessels were permitted to touch. Imported disease, exploitation of the land, and coolie immigration. These are the destroying forces from which the native must be preserved if a shadow of the old charm is to linger for the enjoyment of future generations of travelers. Following Tejino toward the house, I thought to myself how wonderfully the island charm had been preserved here on the peninsula of Taparu. We were within fifty miles of Papati, where business is carried on and steamers call, and perspiring tourists walk briskly about the streets. Yet here, in this lonely settlement by the lagoon, civilization seemed half a world away. When I walked abroad, the sight of a white man brought the people to their doors, and bands of children followed me, staring and bright-eyed with interest. On the veranda, children surrounded us while the girl cut and distributed thin slices of her melon. There was a fascination in watching these youngsters, brought up without clothes and without restraint, in an environment nearly as friendly as that of the original human pair. Once they were weaned from their mother's breast, which often does not occur until they have reached the age of two and a half or three, the children of the islands are left practically to shift for themselves. There is food in the house, a place to sleep, and a scrap of clothing if the weather be cool. That is the extent of parental responsibility. The child eats when it pleases, sleeps when and where it will amuse itself, with no other resources than its own. As it grows older, certain light duties are expected of it gathering fruit, lending a hand with fishing, cleaning the ground about the house, but the command to work is casually giving and as casually obeyed. Punishment is scarcely known. Yet under a system which would ruin forever an American or English child, the brown youngster flourishes with astonishingly little friction. Sweet-tempered, cheerful, never bored, and seldom quarrelsome, the small boy tugs at the net or gathers bait for the fisherman, seemingly without a thought of drudgery. The small girl tends her smaller sister in the spirit of playing with a doll. Perhaps the restless and aggressive spirit which makes discipline necessary in bringing up our own children is the very quality that has made the white race master of the world. Perhaps the more hostile surroundings of civilization have made necessary the enforcement of prohibitory laws. 
I filled my pipe and lay smoking on a mat, with an eye on the youngsters at their play. For the time being, a little girl at the most attractive period of childhood was the center of interest. One of her front teeth was loose. She had tied a bit of bark to it, and was summoning up courage for a determined pull. A boy stole up behind her, reached over her shoulder, and gave the merciful jerk. Next moment he was dancing around her, waving the strip of bark to which the tooth was still attached. The owner of the tooth began to sob, holding a hand over her mouth. But her lamentations ceased when a larger boy shouted seriously, "'Give her the tooth, and let her speak to the rat.' The small girl trotted to the edge of the bush, where I heard her repeat a brief invocation before she flung the tooth into a thicket of hibiscus. I knew what she was saying, for I had made inquiries concerning this children's custom, probably as old as it is quaint. It is a sort of exchange. The baby tooth is thrown among the bushes, and the rat is invoked to replace it with one as white and durable as his own. The child says, Thy tooth, thy tooth, O rat, give the man. The tooth, the tooth of the man, I give to the rat. No doubt the games of children everywhere are very much the same. In the islands, at any rate, an American child would soon find itself at home. The boys walk on stilts, play tag, blindman's bluff, prisoner's base, and a game called peripania, like what we called peewee when I was a youngster in California, almost exactly as those things are done at home. The girls play cat's cradle, hopscotch, jackstones, and jack straws, often joining in the rougher games of their brothers. One curious game, evidently modern and perhaps originated by the children of missionaries, is called para Poa Tahi, the game of the wild beast. The boys and girls who pretend to be sheep stand in line one behind the other, clinging together under the protection of the mother ewe at the head of the line. Presently the wild beast appears, demanding a victim to eat. You are the wild beast? the sheep ask. Yes, he replies, and I want a male sheep. He then waits while the sheep, in whispers inaudible to him, decide on which boy, for the beast has his choice of sexes, shall be sacrificed. When the decision is made, the mother at the head of the line says, You want a male sheep? At that, all the others chant in unison, Then take off your hat, and take off your clothes, and strike the hot iron. The last word is the signal for the victim to make a dash for safety. If he can get behind the mother before the wild beast catches him, the performance is repeated until the beast succeeds in catching another boy or girl, who then becomes the Pua Tahini. The twelve-year-old daughter of Marie, for Amria, was the great-grandmother, not an uncommon thing in this land of rapid generations, had been talking for several days of piercing her ears in order to install a pair of earrings, to which she had fallen heir. This evening she had finally mustered courage for the ordeal. I watched her hesitating approach, and saw her hand, Temerto, the necessary instruments, a cork, a pair of scissors, and a brace of sharp orange thorns, from which the green bark had been carefully stripped. Whatever the color, woman's endurance, in the name of vanity, is proverbial. The child made no outcry as the thorn passed through the lobe of her ear, sank into the cork, and was snipped off, inside and out, close to the skin. The remaining section to be removed a fortnight later, when the small wound had healed. As Tehinotu 
smiled at me and flourished the scissors to which clung a drop of blood. I heard a shrill call from the cookhouse. Harry May Tama! It was supper time. Some of the children, in answer to the call, straggled toward where Amenia squatted beside her oven. Others, already stuffed with odds and ends of fruit, went on with their play. Marie beckoned to me as he passed. The meal was a casual affair. One helped oneself, without ceremony, squatting to exchange conversation between bites, or walked away, food in hand. There were pork, cold fish, baked taro, and sections of cream-colored breadfruit, ripe and delicately cooked. The sun had set when we finished, and as the sky gave promise of a clear night, I spread a mat on the river bank. Bedtime in these places comes when drowsiness sets in. As I fell asleep, the clouds veiling the highlands of Tahiti Nui were still luminous in the afterglow. It was midnight when I woke. In the house, faintly illuminated by the light of a turned-down lamp, the family of Aramia slept. The air was warm and scented with the perfume of exotic flowers. The river was like a dark mirror, reflecting the stars. Even the Pacific seemed to sleep, breathing gently in the sigh of little waves dallying with the bar. Presently I became aware of subdued voices. Arima and Tamata, the chief's mother, were seated on the rocks below me, fishing with long rods of bamboo for the fia, which runs in with the night tide. They were recalling the past as old ladies will. The women of Tahiti, remarked Timora, are not what they were when I was young. Nowadays, you may travel from morning to night without seeing a really beautiful girl. These are true words, says Hermina. Aye, if you had seen my eldest daughter who died when she was fifteen, she was lovely as the etate, the white tern which hovers above the treetops. Her eyes were brown and laughing, her hair fell in ringlets to her knees, her teeth were small white pearls, and her laughter, like the sound of cool water running in a shady place. Alas! my vihinta she was our firstborn my husband loved her as he loved none of the others a strange dreamy child i used to watch her when she thought herself alone sometimes i know not why the tears came to my eyes as i saw her gazing into the sky while she chanted under her breath the little old song the children sing to the turn oh atelier saving above the still forest where shall you fly to-night downwind across the sea to terror the low island as she grew older a wasting illness fell on her the doctors could do nothing to stop her coughing my husband even took her to the white doctor in papeete it was on his recommendation that we took her to sea we were in mangave far off the gimber islands when i saw that the end was near my husband was not blind he headed back for Tahiti at once, giving up the rest of his trip. Venihita was never more beautiful than on the last morning of her life. Cheeks flushed and eyes shining soft and clear as the first star of evening. We were nearly home, off Mita, the little island which lies between Tahiti and Anna. She died in my arms, and I covered her with the bright patchwork to prepare. Her own hands had sewn. Our child is dead, I told the captain. Her father, as I came on deck, he said nothing, but put a hand on my shoulder and pointed towards the masthead, where I saw a small white tern hovering above us. I cannot tell you how, 
but I knew at once the soul of my daughter was in that pretty bird. It flew with us all day, and at evening, as we entered the harbor of Papeete, it turned back and disappeared in the night. For many years thereafter, each time my husband passed Maitea, homeward bound, the white bird was waiting for him at the place where my daughter had died. The voices of the old women murmured on, recalling the joys and sorrows of other days. Suddenly, in a mango tree behind the house, a rooster crowed, answered far and near by others of his kind, as the last drawn-out cry died in silence of the night. I yielded to an overpowering drowsiness and fell asleep. End of chapter 14「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.